Well, we are in Joshua. We're really finishing up the account of the conquest and fall of Jericho and leading into the failure at Ai. Now, we, just by way of reminder, we've already talked about how God gave this plan for conquering Jericho that seemed absolutely ludicrous, that the Israelite people were to surround this great walled city um, over the course of seven days, surround it, and then on the last day to surround it seven times and blow a trumpet and shout, and that this magnificent wall that protected this city would crumble to dust, that this was the battle plan of God, to which we even have archaeological evidence that testifies that this is how this great walled city was destroyed. And we talked about the spiritual, the hard spiritual lessons in the conquest, that, that God's absolute holy justice was brought upon this wicked nation, that the, the folks in Jericho who were to fall by the sword were not just innocent People, but there were those who had committed great and evil acts of, of sin, um, doing things like sacrificing their children to the fire and to the, the pagan gods of their culture. And so part of what God was doing was not just in bringing a people into the land, but also judging those who had forsaken God. Except, of course, for one family. We've already spoken of, of uh, Rahab back in Joshua chapter 2, but we saw, of course, that here in the conquest of Jericho, one family out of all those in Jericho was spared, and it was the family of this prostitute who had in her own fear of God, in her own understanding that the way that she had grown up, her culture, the gods that her uh, family and her neighbors all followed were, were false gods in comparison to the true God of Israel. We saw how Again, even the archaeological records show that there was one portion of the wall that did not fall and that uh, she has a significance not only in redemptive history, that is being a part of uh, the people of God, being brought into salvation, but that she also has a prophetic history as one of those who were in the very lineage of Jesus Christ himself. In other words, that there was a long plan that God had to bring this Gentile sinner into the very family and lineage of Jesus Christ. Now today we're going to go from Jericho to Ai, from victory and success to failure and judgment, and we're going to see how quickly people can abandon God, even coming off the heels of seeing God do amazing things. And of course, that's a familiar tune. If you even just remember what happened in the Exodus, after God had done these 10 plagues, how quick were the people to make an idol for themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. We'll see this again here. But let's begin first with the end of Joshua chapter 6, starting in verse 26. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before Yahweh, be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So Yahweh was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Now here we have at the end of this conquest sort of a curse placed not on Jericho, but anyone who would come after the destruction of Jericho to rebuild This wicked city, this demonstration of God's power and authority, there's a curse on anyone that in the future might defy that. 
Now, sometimes a curse in the Bible, it's a warning. And, and the point is, no one, may no one ever do such a thing, and then no one ever does. But there are other times in the Bible where a curse is as good as a prophecy, that it is something that will come to pass, something God is going to do because someone is going to go against him, and there's going to be a consequence that God has declared beforehand. Now, in this case, this sounds like a kind of a very specific sort of thing. Your, your oldest child, your youngest child are going to die if you try to rebuild this foundation and its gates. Well, this does come to pass in 1 Kings chapter 16. If you want to turn there and, and read along with the story, otherwise you can just listen. But 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, we are introduced to some of the evil kings of Israel. And one in particular, Ahab, stands out amongst all the wicked kings of Israel. And Israel, when we say Israel in that context, we mean the ten northern tribes. At this time, the kingdom had split between Israel and Judah, ten tribes of Jacob in the north, two tribes, uh, Benjamin and Judah in the south. And Ahab in the north was a in the line of many wicked kings who had always defied God. Now, he was particularly bad. He spent actually quite a few chapters in Kings just about Ahab and how awful he was. He married a wicked woman, Jezebel, and together they just brought ruin upon the people. Now, here we're introduced to him, and we're told how wicked he is, um, how he walked in the sins of Jeroboam uh, as if it was nothing. <laughs> Like, it's like, you know, you know that guy, Hitler? You know, do you remember that guy? Well, I'm worse. It's, it's that kind of thing that he walked uh, in, in a very notably worse way than the most wicked kind of king that they had have, had up until this point. He did all kinds of things to worship Baal, erected altars and all these things. Um, and he provoked God and angered God. Now, in the midst of this blurb kind of about kind of about the beginning of Ahab's reign, you, you get this in verse 34. So this is 1 Kings 16, 34. In his days, that is the days of King Ahab, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of of noon. Now, Joshua is around 1400 BC. King Ahab comes to power about 870 BC, so that's about a 530 years have passed. And um, here we have the fruition, finally, after over 500 years, of someone trying to rebuild this city. And it comes to pass exactly as God describes. Now, why is this introduced here within the context of the reign of King Ahab? Well, it's because there's no way that Heel would have tried to build Jericho without the blessing and the permission of Ahab, or perhaps even the command of Ahab. Ahab um, was going to have some um, altercations in Israel in general with the Moabites, who were very near to the city of Jericho. So, you know, commentators say, well, it was certainly in Ahab's interest to rebuild this fortified city at Jericho because of the Moabites. And so Heel gets commissioned, it sounds like, to do this. Now, it says here that the foundation was laid 
uh, at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub. And that's the very words of Joshua chapter 6. But the question is, what does that mean that it was at the cost of so-and-so? Did they die by accident, you know, in the course of building the foundation and, and the gates? Well, there is actually evidence that at the time, there was a practice by the pagans, of course, to make human sacrifices for building projects. That in order to bless, you know, they wanted to seek the blessing of the gods on whatever that they're constructing. And so this was so important, um, perhaps, that um, Hiel thought fit to sacrifice even his own children in order to build up this project. Now, again, there's not any details except that it comes in the context of King Ahab. So it's kind of lending you to the idea that King Ahab really wanted this to happen. It was important to him, so important that Heel is willing to do it or maybe forced to, I don't know. But two, two people are sacrificed in order for this city to be rebuilt. And this is all supposed to tell you that Ahab is a wicked person that he is someone that does not honor God and does not fear God and is willing to do kind of wicked and horrible things. And you'll see that throughout 1 Kings. Now, what's interesting is that while there is archaeological evidence of some habitation at Jericho, in other words, that people kind of came and went from there, there's actually no evidence, so far at least, archaeological evidence, that there was any kind of fortified structure at that site. It doesn't absolutely mean that there's never any kind of fortified city rebuilt on top of Jericho, but we don't have any archaeological evidence, which in a place that is very rigorously kind of um, dug and researched, we're supposed, I think, historically now looking back at it to understand that God destroyed Jericho, and when they tried to rebuild it, it did not last, that whatever heel did did not amount to very much. There's no evidence. You know, when we saw those pictures of Jericho, that's essentially the Jericho that was destroyed, not some later Jericho. That was it. And no one tried to build on it because that's why you see all the same ruins there still. So whatever this man tried to do, um, perhaps under the commission of King Ahab, he was not able to really build anything of any substance there. And so, again, the idea that God brought his judgment to Jericho. This was not just military conquest. This is not just expanding the territory. This was a judgment from God such that no one was going to be able to really rebuild on this area and live there as a fortified city, you know, passing people just living there, yeah, but like as a city, never again, even to this day. All of this is a very clear picture an affirmation that God is with the Israelites. God is with Joshua. Verse 27, just so Yahweh was with Joshua. His fame was in all the land. He became well known. And of course, the Israelites were, were feared now because of the conquest of this great walled structure. It's a clear blessing, a picture of the blessing that can come when we do things God's way, when we actually trust him. What follows immediately then after um, this in the next city of conquest is almost nearly the opposite. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1 begins with a, a summary of what we're about to hear. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, 
For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of Yahweh burned against the people of Israel. So there you have a summary of what is going to happen next. It's a very kind of Jewish thing, is they'll tell you what to expect, what's about to happen, what, what story you're going to hear more of the details of. And it's that in the course of the people of Israel conquering, there was a man who, rather than listen to the Lord's command that when they came into a place to conquer it, they destroyed everything, and the only things that they were to keep was really the gold, the silver, the bronze, and the iron, and that was to go to the treasury of the Lord. In other words, there was no looting that was supposed to be going on, no, no pillaging, no taking for yourself anything. It was either destroyed or is for God. But this man took some of those things for his own possession, and for that, God brought his anger. So, you might ask the question, even from the summary statement, why does it sound like that although one man, just one man committed this sin, and they're very specific about, you know, he's the son of the son of the son of the tribe of Judah, why does it say that the people of Israel broke faith? All of them. Why does it say that the anger of Yahweh burned against the people of Israel? All of them, even though there's a very specific one person that is being blamed for this. Well, we're going to talk about that. We're going to you know, think, you know, think about that as we go through it. But why does it seem that Israel share, is sharing the consequence of one man's sin? You know, you might even ask a question also when you look at that. How could it slip so easily into the mind of Achan to go from seeing the blessing that comes when you obey to testing the Lord and acting selfishly. So keep some of those thoughts in mind as we go through uh, the narrative. So um, we'll go ahead and just read through it, all right? So I'm going to read big sections at a time. I debated that because it's a long passage, but we'll do it. So Joshua 7.2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near uh, Beth-Avon, which means house of evil, uh, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted. And became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth and on his face before the ark of Yahweh until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord Yahweh, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites? To destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Now, it's noticeable 
here at the beginning of Joshua 7 that God is oddly absent from these opening verses about the conquest of Ai. It's unusual only because God seemed to be very invested, involved almost in every step that they took from being across the Jordan to crossing the Jordan to stepping foot into the promised land to being at the doorstep of Jericho. There's a lot of interaction between Joshua and God. Joshua is almost afraid to do anything without God's explicit, uh, explicit leading um, but here, Joshua seems to be taking the initiative, um, almost seems like without consulting God. When the spies give their report, Joshua um, formulates a plan really entirely based on the spies and their testimony and their judgment and their wisdom. Now, it's not necessarily sinful to do that, and I'm not necessarily saying that the kind of absence of God here is necessarily Joshua being sinful, but it's just something that... Um, commentators point out that Joshua suddenly seems to go from a, you know, quote-unquote military strategy of round and round a city, blowing trumpets, to attacking. AI was on an uphill. There's, I think, almost 2,000 was it meters or feet. Meters would be big, but there's a quite a big uh, height elevation gain to get into AI. So you're fighting uphill, you're fighting a fortified city, and um, some commentators say that AI could have deployed about two or 3,000 defenders. And of course, you're uphill, you're behind walls. If you're defending, 3,000 is a lot. And for the spies to say, you know, oh, we just need two or 3,000 seems almost haughty. Like, well, I mean, we took Jericho without you know, hard losing anybody. I mean, we just circled them. So commentators kind of point out that there seems to be um, a shift in how the conquest is being approached by Joshua and the men. None of this specifically sinful or said as sinful, but we see that the Israelites get routed very easily. They lose 36 of their men, a very specific number, which tells us that this isn't a historical account. This is intended to be taken as history. And at a time when you, you know, uh, war was very common then, you could have a, a, a route of people, um, or you could take over, you know, uh, or win a battle without any casualties. So the point that they uh, lost 36 men, um, it was a big deal. I mean, it says that their hearts melted and became as water. So those were words that were being used to describe the Canaanites and the Hittites and all the other ites, they were the ones who were scared of Joshua and, and Yahweh. And now here they are in their fear. So it seems like something has broken down. Something is not going right in any case. Tearing clothes, putting dust on the head, that was a very customary way of showing dismay, sorrow, anger. The fact that they are doing this before the ark of Yahweh is saying that they're coming to Yahweh in their desperation. Now, in my reading of this, Joshua almost sounds like he's having a, a bit of a tantrum. Uh, I say that because he does this kind of classic thing where first he kind of blames God. Why have you brought this people? We were better off on the other side of the Jordan. And then he blames the Israelites. You know, what can I say? Israel has turned their backs before their enemies. They're kind of, you know, just like blaming God. Blame the Israelites. Just, you know, he, he's just having, um, it's just a, a classic kind of, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's wrong. I don't know what happened. I don't know what to do. He's desperate. Uh, and that is kind of a very humbling position to be in 
when just before your reading, Yahweh was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. You know, so you're talking about someone that, that was uh, feared and revered in the land, and now here he is in this humbly desperate moment, you know, kind of accusing God, kind of, you know, blaming other people, ultimately um, crying out. I, I mean, what will happen if we all get cut off? Our name is cut off, meaning we are completely wiped out. What will you do, God, for your name's sake? <laughs> and that is a really good plea, despite whatever you might say about Joshua's desperation and, you know, pleading with God, blaming God, and all those things, he knows that ultimately God has to want to defend his own character, his own name, that he can't, Joshua can't say, don't you know who I am? Don't you know my name? Don't you know how important I am? It can't be a plea that is based on his own accomplishments, his own achievements. Ultimately, he is pleading, God, you must do something to protect your great name. And you have said that you will take care of our enemies. You said this is our land. So God, what are you going to do? I think it's, he's genuinely meaning that uh, in a complete you know, dependence uh, upon God. And we do see all throughout the Bible where, where God does say that he is going to do this for his own name's sake which is another way of saying, like we've been going through Ephesians, to the praise of his glory. Joshua is saying, what will you do for the praise of your glory? If we're all wiped out, then how will this be to the praise of your glory? So Lord, for your sake, for your reputation's sake, your honor, your character, what can be done? What must be done? What will you do? Well, how does Yahweh respond to Joshua's plea? Starting verse 10. Yahweh said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that Yahweh takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that Yahweh takes shall come near by households, and the household that Yahweh takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of Yahweh, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel." Yahweh makes the whole nation have to take responsibility for this sin of one person taking some of these devoted things for himself. Now, it's very emphatic, actually, in English that God is definitely blaming all of Israel. Um, if you were to make it like kind of a direct translation, it would sound more like this. Israel has sinned. They even transgressed the covenant that, they, that I commanded them. They even took some of the devoted things. They even stole. They even lied. They even put it with their own belongings. 
You know, in English, the they even feels too repetitive, repetitive, but in Hebrew, they love repetition to make a point. So there is a little Hebrew word, gam, that is even, and it's there like five times to say it's not just that they did one thing, but they even did this. They even did that. They even did this. There's almost a, a cadence to it that God is just sort of, you know, that, that lecturing tone. They did this, and then they did this, and then they did this, and then they did this. There's no question that God is blaming the whole nation for these crimes, and he is not going to return to them in blessing until those stolen items are taken care of, and the one who stole it is himself devoted to destruction, just like the cities were. And just to be clear, when, when he calls them you know, stolen items, who are they stolen from? Is it from the people of you know, Jericho or Ai? No, from God, because they were dedicated to God. They belonged to him. They, this person, Achan, we know because we know the story, had stolen from God himself. God gives Joshua a procedure to follow. Basically, they're going to set aside the next day for God to identify the, culp- the culprit. And the, the plan is basically to narrow it down, you know, tribe and then clan and then household and then the individual. The consequence for the one who would be discovered is that he and his household would receive the same judgment as a pagan city like Jericho. Yahweh highlights just how horrific this is. He says, because he has transgressed the covenant of Yahweh to break a promise with God, to go back on a contract. Now, the thing is, this contract says you get everything. You're, it's, this is an awesome contract that is for you. It is for your benefit. You have nothing to lose, everything to gain, why would you break it? Why would you break a covenant with Yahweh? And, and, but it's also like, why would you break this when it's so obviously beneficial to you? But why would you break a promise with God who owns everything and knows everything? There's, there's kind of a double foolishness there. You have so much to gain from this covenant. Why would you ever think to try and find a better deal or go around it? And on top of that, why do you think you can get away with, this is not like, you know, this is not even like a mob boss or mafia boss. You'd feel a little bit of concern or worry breaking a deal with them. This is God, the God of the universe. Why? And that's why it's called here because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. This is a, kind of an interesting term, at least one of the lexicons I look, looked at. It essentially said, unbelievably stupid. <laughs> because this is unbelievably stupid thing that you would think to do. I just unbelievably awful, unbelievably just, you know, do you have two brain cells that are in close proximity that can touch? You would make a better decision. How could you do something so stupid? Seeing as how God had done such wonderful things, demonstrated his absolute power to conquer an entire city with just your obedience marching around. It just seems stupid to try and slip something past God. It just seems so inconceivably ignorant to throw away a promise that is so good for you. And yet, Achan does this, and we do too. (laughs) 
That's the point. You, I think we have to put ourselves in a situation where we can understand Achan here. Because it's very easy to come into this and say, Achan, you are so dumb. How could you possibly think to do that? But you have to understand, you're going into a city, and there's money and riches everywhere. You know, you are rifling through as a soldier. You're in a house by yourself, and there's loot. There's, there's treasure there. I, I mean, no one's going to know. No one's going to see you if you grab some of that and just shove it in your pocket. I mean, these are horrible pagan people anyway. They don't deserve it. They're all, you know, we're, we're, we're having to kill them anyway. No one's going to miss this. No one's going to notice this. If that, if you, maybe you are not someone who has ever been enticed or tempted that way, that when, you know, mom or dad had their back turned, you would try to sneak an extra candy or an extra cookie or you know, I, I, I was a little bit of a thief when I was in junior high. So it was, you know, like stealing stuff. You kind of would think that way. Like how easy or hard would that be to steal? And your question is, can I get away with it or not? And so I, I, I do think we need to understand that while maybe you wouldn't, we'll get to this in a little bit, maybe you wouldn't ever be tempted this way, you know, as you're going through, well, I don't care about gold, silver, bronze, or, or whatever. I mean, this is a horrible thing we have to do here, but for the honor of God, we've got to conquer the city, kill the women, kill the children. We can't take anything for ourselves. It just, I just need to trust the Lord and do everything God's way. But let's be honest, there is at some point in your life where you face a temptation, and you gave into that temptation. Well, hello, Achan. So we don't want to be very careful, and we get to, I mean, how that intersects with with the whole nation being culpable. But I do want to make sure, as much as we're saying that is so outrageously stupid, what Aiken is doing, if you cannot look in the mirror and, and, and think of a time when you did something outrageously dumb uh, in the eyes of God, then you're maybe not being very honest with yourself. Anyway, now that we know that there is one individual that committed the sin, why, let's talk about or a little bit or discuss a little bit why this does become a corporate or group sin. Because obviously God's plan here even is to narrow down the guilt to one man. I mean, he knows that there's a single man. It's the point. <laughs> so why is he saying, you have, they have even stolen, they, 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 Israel, the people of Israel. Why does he do that? Now I'm going to, the first thought here is I think an argument from the rest of Joshua and the rest of the Old Testament. And I'll say it like this. Yes, it's likely that no one else had committed this particular sin. That Achan, I think is very clear, out of all the thousands and thousands of, you know, Israelite soldiers, Achan alone actually put something in his pocket or, or whatever, however, you know, in his bag. So that seems like a very good ratio of people obeying the Lord to not obeying the Lord. But I can almost guarantee because of what we've seen in Exodus, what we've seen in Numbers, what we'll see in Judges, or even the rest of Joshua, what we'll see in Judges, what we'll see in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles is that there's a high, high, high likelihood that many of the Israelites entertained the thought that Achan had, that while they didn't do it, 
they were probably thinking about it. Why do I say that? Well, I've already mentioned this before, but you know, at the end of Joshua, when God gives this, or when Joshua gives a speech, speech, you know, choose now whom you will serve, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And everyone said, yes, we're going to serve the Lord too. While they were speaking the words, yes, we'll serve the Lord too, what was going on? They had idols in their home at that very moment. So the same people that are going to have idols in their home at that very moment, as they are saying, yes, we choose God, had already chosen other gods. I don't think it's far-fetched to say, in other words, that these are not some pure-hearted people, and Achan is the only bad seed. Instead, I think that you likely had a lot of these soldiers who had contemplated the very same idea as Achan. They just hadn't done it yet. And in a way, what God is trying to do in making a big deal about this one doing it is to freak out all the others who are maybe thinking, you know, and and I think there's an insinuation here that maybe some people didn't know that Achan had done it, right? Uh, At least his family likely did. So if they were thinking about it, and if Achan had gotten away for, for uh, away with it, what would have happened? Certainly, it would have emboldened others to do the same. That's how sin works. It seems to be a case where God is trying to stress to Israel the severity of even one individual's sin as corrupting to everybody else, such that he makes, he puts it on the shoulders of all the people of Israel to bear this burden, though but one has actually committed the sin. And of course, God can make that judgment because he knows hearts. And I know it doesn't say explicitly that all the people had it in their hearts maybe to do something similar, but I think that reconciles the idea here um, that despite it being one person, the one person was sort of symbolic of a great many others that were maybe just close to committing the same sin. Paul would say in terms of a similar idea in the church that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, Galatians 5.9. And he's talking about how legalism, if you allow that leaven, that yeast to get into the lump of a church, and the lump is a church, that that can quickly spread. And so he's telling the Galatians, bear responsibility. Do not, it will be your sin if you let this, if you allow this to continue and prosper. And so... This incident here is intended to kind of sober everyone up. Maybe there were a few, more than a few, that said, well, I mean, really, what does it matter? No one's going to miss a few bars of silver or gold. So this is not an occasion, I think, where one person is representing, let's say, everyone else, because sometimes you'll have, like, Daniel as a prophet, who actually hasn't sinned, but he goes before God and he essentially bears the the sins of Israel. Israel has sinned against you. I'm interceding for them. I'm standing in the gap for them. Um, This is not like one of those kinds of noble occasions where one person is bearing the sins of others. Rather, uh, it seems like um, perhaps like the first drop in a flood, you know, the first leak in the dam that could explode. God is trying to uh, put a stop to this. So I think in coming now to more maybe contemporary or or Christian um, uh, application is we ought to be mindful 
We ought to not grow lax or proud or comfortable in keeping the weeds of sin out of our own hearts because if we allow it to start growing in our own hearts, it will affect other people. If, they, if other people start to know, you know, I'm cultivating this sin and, and they don't call me out and I know they're not calling me out, that will just embolden you know, a person to sin more. And then that person gets emboldened to sin more. We do have a responsibility as a group to watch out for sin, to watch out. Um, even Jesus said, you know, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. So even Jesus had this idea in mind that we need to be careful as a group about what happens with the individual. If we let a little sin become acceptable, even if we don't do it ourselves, we open the door for others to sin. And then for even more egregious sins to enter in after that. So we do need to care. We do need to bear some responsibility for how other people are doing, what they're struggling with, what, what sins are going on. Not in a condemning way, though. Look at, well, if you want to turn there, Galatians 6, 1. And, you know, Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So you get the impression, watch out for legalism. You better not, you know, let this happen in your church. And it can sound like you get like a, you know, everyone's just hunting for sins and everyone's just, you know, uh, trying to be judgmental. But Paul knows better than just leave us with that attitude. He says, Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In other words, that is intended to communicate to us. You need to absolutely care about whether other people are sinning. But when you bring it up to them, it better be with gentleness or you might find that someone is going to come and be judgmental to you about some sin you're harboring. You're going to look foolish. You're going to look like a hypocrite. So don't, be, don't, don't go around just judging people and telling them they're wrong, or you might come around back to you, and you might suffer for it. So um, hopefully that explains maybe a little bit about why there seems to be a corporate nature to this one man's sin. Now, in the verses following, we see Achan's sin exposed now. So verse 16, Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to Yahweh, God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against Yahweh, God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before Yahweh. 
And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? Yahweh brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then Yahweh turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Achor means trouble. Now, here's a question. God obviously knew who the thief was. Why go through this whole big process of casting lots? And we don't know what kind of lots they cast, but basically there was some system, you can imagine like throwing dice that um, they would, you know, like, or, or, or draw straws. When a tribe came, they had some kind of lots they cast that would tell them whether God has chosen this group or this clan or not. So they had a kind of system, we don't know exactly what it was, but they cast lots. But why bother going through this whole pig-long process, day-long process. This is the kindness of God. Achan had an opportunity to do what? <laughs> Confess, right? As, as soon as the tribe of Judah is taken. You know, there's 12 tribes, right? Oh, there's a one in 12 chance. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty, you know, <laughs> lottery chances. That's way better. But, you know, but you might start thinking, yeah, Maybe I need to be worried. <laughs> and then when it goes to the clan of the Zerahites, you know, well, there's a lot of clans in a, in a tribe. And then you might start thinking, okay, do I want to keep, you know, risking this? You see, at every level where the lots were cast, Achan had an opportunity to say, okay, okay. Uh, it, it's probably going to, I just need to fess up. The fact that he waits till the lot literally points to him as the guy says what? Up until that moment, he was still hoping it would be like his brother or, you know, some other guy. What does that tell you about whether he truly had a repentant attitude? When, when he says here, you know, after, after, you know, Joshua, frankly, being, you know, <laughs> very... Um, very blunt with him, you know, give glory to God, give praise to him, tell me what you've done, don't hide it. He does seem to say very immediately without any excuse or hemming or hawing, I truly, I have sinned against Yahweh God of Israel. This is what I did. Was that driven by genuine repentance or because he had no choice? I mean, how could you argue at that point, you know, statistically, <laughs> you know, that, you know, it happened to, to pick me, you ought to have such a fear of God at that moment, but, but you, had, you should have had it the moment you sinned against God. It's just a tremendous thought to think he forwent so many opportunities to confess. But again, we've got to think more like Achan. Anytime we've ever sinned, guess what? I'm willing to bet there was a lot of opportunities to stop. And, yeah, maybe I shouldn't, have, shouldn't do this. 
that God gives oftentimes many opportunities for us to confess and say, I am on a bad line of thinking here. I'm on a bad uh, path. I'm, I'm, I'm taking the wrong steps. And we have a chance to repent. So again, it's very easy to throw the first stone. It's ironic, but at Achan, but ought we not to be at least a little bit willing to say, yeah, there are some times where God had to pin the nose so directly on me, I had no room to escape his judgment. Why did it take me until that point? Till the stakes were so high to confess and repent. But the fact that, that God orchestrates this whole ordeal, it's saying something very patient and long-suffering and kind and gracious about God that that he was willing to do this whole big process, just, you know, God knows everything and predestination and all that, but from our perspective and from Achan's perspective, to, to experience God being very patient and giving him a chance to repent every time that Lot was cast to own up to his crime. And yet, it seems that as the Lot kept getting closer to him, his hope that it, it would fall on someone else increased rather than his own desire to repent. Now, notice also that what's really at the root of his sin? I coveted and took them. You know, it's the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, but many theologians have pointed out coveting can quickly lead to all of the other sins, from adultery and theft to murder to blasphemy coveting. Did you catch that Achan had a lot of stuff? He had sons. He had daughters. He had oxen. He had donkeys. He had sheep and and his tent and all that he had, meaning that he seemed to have a lot. Do you think he needed that gold and that silver and that beautiful cloak? Probably not. It did not matter that he already had an abundance. Coveting is that insidious. You can always want something more because there's something out there you don't have. Even if you have, seems like you have everything. There's still things out there that you don't have. That is how quickly we can become a coveter and that is how we can quickly <coughs> lose sight <coughs> of honoring the Lord. He didn't need what he stole, more than likely. Well, surely, because God had provided for them all throughout the wilderness. He needed nothing. Almost, and he sounded like he had more than what he needed. And yet, he stole. And it's implied, again, that the family might have been in on the deception because he hid it inside his tent under the ground. He dug a hole to put it in there, and that's not likely to happen without notice of his family. So again, some commentators say there was a cover-up here, too that the family did know and that the fact that the family members remained silent and effectively lied for Achan means that this corporate punishment was, was reasonable, that his whole household ends up being stoned and set on fire was something that, that was because of their guilt as well and their complicity in this and perhaps even others that Achan knew, knew. And that was maybe part of why God was condemning all Israel, that it wasn't that they had themselves committed it, but they knew that Achan had committed a sin and said nothing. In any case, you can also view this as a wartime crime. This is treason. This is complete 
disobedience to the explicit commands of the commanding officer. So this is also wartime. This is also an act against your own government. And of course, treason can be punished by death as well. But uh, if you allow this kind of rebellion against the commanding officer during wartime, that cannot be allowed to be perpetrated. And so while for us it seems like an awfully serious uh, penalty and punishment for the sin of just, you know, you looted some stuff that no one was going to miss anyway and that you didn't really need. Um, as far as God was concerned, this was a breach of covenant. This was uh, to lie to God and to others. This was to disobey the commands of your commanding officer. Um, this was uh, completely, horrifically, outrageously sinful, dumb, stupid. Now, if you notice, God said just to, you know, destroy it by fire. What does Joshua do? Joshua has all Israel come out and stone him. So that is a group activity. And the reason to do that was in a way, again, Joshua doesn't seem to be rebuked for doing this because he still obeys the explicit command to burn. But Uh, The act of stoning in that time was intended to be a community punishment where the whole community is acknowledging that this will destroy our community if we let it be fostered. So we all are taking responsibility for this this crime and this action. And then uh, they, they burn it. So um, that, that explains kind of the, the stones there. Is it's intended, Joshua, to, for each person to participate in it is what it's also saying, if you do this, if you have it in mind to do this, just look at that stone and say, I could be the one receiving these. There is a sense that we ought to have that kind of um, self-reflection. The worst attitude that they could have had one of these uh, soldiers coming to Achan and, and, and having to stone him, having to see him receive, and him and his whole family and all of his things receive this judgment of destruction. The worst attitude would have been for them would have been, yeah, but this guy is so bad. He's way worse than I am. He deserves this. God wanted this lesson to cause all of them to fear him in their hearts, to have a repentant attitude, to keep short accounts with him, to not be so eager to to lay judgment on others without looking and examining your own hearts. It would have been the worst thing for all those people to say, phew, better him than me. And to have that kind of attitude. Rather, all of this for them and for us, is to be an illustration of not being lulled into a false sense of security on our own, to not think we can pull a fast one on God or get away with sinning. I mean, those kinds of of lies and subtle deceptions, to have that pride that says, well, that could never happen to me as we condemn someone else for some sin or crime. And then only to have that thrown back in our face when we are found guilty of some equally egregious sin. We should be humbled by 
these events, we should take to heart that we wouldn't want anyone else to fall and stumble into sin, not so that we can be in a position of, you, you are so messed up, I'm so glad I'm not you, but to say, if, if I don't help you in your struggle with sin, who's going to help me? How, 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 what kind of community will this be if we're just looking at other people to judge them and feel better about ourselves? Rather, if we take a communal kind of responsibility, we're saying, well, the reason I don't want other people to stumble and fall into sin and the reason I'm watching out for them and watching their back is because I want people to do the same for me, to love me enough to tell me that I'm doing wrong or acting wrong. And so here, the people of Israel are intended to bear this joint responsibility to say, this could be any one of us. This will be every one of us if we don't all care for, look out for, lay hold as a, as a body these commands of the Lord and help each other uh, through them. So I hope, <laughs> I was wondering if I was going to make the pun, but I will. I don't want us to be Achan like Achan, right? That's, that's the conclusion. And we do that by looking at our own hearts wanting our own hearts to be clear of the weeds of sin, not letting them grow, not wanting them to grow in other people's hearts as well, so that our whole church, our whole body, our whole community uh, can be one that honors the Lord. Not to think, well, I'm doing good, so no one else matters. Or I'm doing so bad, I want to kind of uh, quarantine myself from everyone else as if it won't affect everyone. No, your sin, my sin, they're all interrelated no matter if I say it or you know it or not. It's just the body is knit together. I cannot, if my, my foot was gangrenous, I, don't, I can't just say, well, I'm going to ignore my foot. It has nothing to do with me. I don't care about it. Well, that will eventually kill your whole body, whether I acknowledge it or not. And that's what sin does in our lives. Even if I don't think, you know, I don't know what's going on in your life. And I, well, that's you. And, and, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with me. But the body of Christ doesn't work like that. It's very much, if something's wrong in one part, it affects all of us, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. And you can't hide that. So um, to not be like Achan, but as we search out our own hearts, as we care for one another, um, looking out for each other and, and wanting for sin to be brought to light, confessed, repented of, and all of us to grow together in love. That is the lesson I think we can take from Achan, um, both from Achan's point of view, but also from the point of view of Israel. So let me pray and we'll close. Oh, let me, let me close with this. If you have found yourself to be an Achan and you are hurting because you have kept your sins silent, there is forgiveness that God offers. Now, in the time of Joshua, there wasn't this opportunity um, just yet because Jesus hadn't lived and died. They had a sacrificial system. If, if Achan had truly been repentant, he could have offered sacrifice, confessed right away. Here, after the death of Christ, if you have sinned, if you have harbored sin, if, uh, if you have things you've done no one knows about, but God, God offers forgiveness, not through the blood of lambs and goats and bulls, but through the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. And he says that if you believe in his death and resurrection as having been for your sake, for the sake of forgiving your sins, you can be a part of God's family. You can be free of the judgment and punishment of sin. You cannot be afraid of what others might say or do to you, but you can have a clear conscience before God and men. So if you're not a Christian today, if you have any questions about that, please come and talk to me. Heavenly Father, thank you.